The ocean below caught the last rays of the setting sun. The moon it rose slowly over the Atlantic, over a bank of clouds, and the plane whirred on. For the first four or five hours, the weather was clear, and then the plane encountered a storm, which, in the words of the pilot, was one of the most severe that she had ever encountered. Fog curled around the wings, enveloping her and her golden blue monoplane. And soon, the rain began to pound down, and the thunder cracked all around as the pilot struggled to keep the plane on course. She had to fly by her instruments alone for the remainder of the flight as the weather continued to worsen. Her altimeter gave out at 12,000 feet, and a dangerous amount of ice collected on the little monoplane. From which she assumed that she had risen to a great height, but had no way of knowing. However, this was not even the greatest anxiety she had during her grueling flight, because shortly after her departure from Harbor Grace, a weld had broken in the exhaust pipe, which sent out flames. This, along with a small petrol leak, put the plane in imminent danger of bursting into flames. When the pilot saw the shores of Ireland, she decided to make a landing in the best available pasture, instead of continuing on to her original destination in Rome. She taxied up to the door of a cottage to the surprise of a farmer. And just like that, history had been made. Not only was the pilot, Amelia Earhart, the first woman to fly solo across the Atlantic, but she was also the second person to ever make this flight solo. But she did exactly five years after Charles Lindbergh has done it. Despite the foul weather she had encountered and the defects in her plane, she had also set record time in crossing the Atlantic. In her own words, flying may not all be plain sailing, but the fun of it is worth the price. Hi everybody, and welcome to my podcast, High Flight, Season 1, where I'll be taking a deep dive into the life and mysterious disappearance of Amelia Earhart. So, kind of an overview for you guys. This is a bit of a mini-series on Amelia, so I'll be spending this first episode on who she was, her life, her achievements, just the background of what she had done and everything, why she's famous, and then the next five episodes are going to be about the theories of what happened to her once she disappeared on her final flight with Frederick Noonan. So there's a lot of like theories about what happened to her and obviously no one has found her plane yet um, and we don't really know. So there's a lot of speculation about that and so I'll be diving into that. Um, I'm also going to be, there might be a couple of mini episodes sprinkled throughout just about other aspects of her life that I don't have time to get into on the regular podcast. So I guess to get into it then, um, going back to that quote she had from her book um, called The Fun of It, she said that flying may not be all plain sailing, but that the fun of it is worth the price. And I just, I really love this quote from her because it really encapsulates her free spirit and just her own attitude towards flying. She was such a fearless soul. She was very ambitious and driven and anything that she decided that she wanted to do, she would do it regardless of gender um, stereotypes at the time. And 
I don't think she was necessarily one of those feminists who was going out and saying, I'm going to break down this gender stereotype, but more just doing things because that's what her passion was and what she was driven to do. So, and flying really was her passion too. So also from her book, The Fun of It, she had written um, about her first experience that she had been able to fly in a plane. And this happened when she was, um, I think 22, somewhere in her early twenties. And she went to a, a flying show with her family and was just kind of walking around and seeing the sights. And she was, went up to her dad and she was like, oh, do you know how much like it costs to have a ride in this plane? And her dad was like, oh, I'll go find out. So like she paid, I think $10 or something which was more back in the day, but like still not terribly expensive um, to go ride in this plane uh, with the pilot, Frank Hawks, who was a pretty uh, famous guy in his own way during that time. I mean, flying was just such a new revolutionary thing around then that anybody who really was in the game knew each other. And he was mostly known, I think, for air shows and doing tricks and stuff. Um, those kinds of things. Anyways, she went up with him and she wrote in her book about it and said, as soon as we had left the ground, I knew myself, I myself had to fly. It just really was this thing that she loved and um, kind of looking about at her life, just um, what she did from childhood through high school and college and kind of her switching around in careers in college, it seems like she hadn't really quite found that passion. She had found things that she was good at, but that she maybe didn't want to spend the rest of her life doing. And then she had this experience and she was like, this is it. This is what I want to do with my life. So obviously during her time, um, what she was doing was very groundbreaking for women, but I don't think necessarily that she intended it to be that way. And I think there's just a lot of things that people could say about this. Um, but I found a newspaper clipping from the New York Post um, that was about the same record-making flight that I talked about in the intro, which had a very, uh, shall we say, interesting view on her flight. Um, anyways, it says... As we go into press, it appears that Miss Amelia Earhart Putnam has landed in Ireland after a non-stop flight from Newfoundland. She didn't make Rome as she hoped or Paris as Lindbergh did. We think it almost entirely silly and a useless performance. About all she has proved is that well-known phenomenon of nature that a girl can't jump quite as far as a boy can. So, I don't know, I think that quote really uh, surprised me in my Gen Z mindset of like, oh, well, yeah, women can do things like equally, like flying has nothing to do with like a person's strength. I guess maybe it more so did back then, but like not really to very much extent. So just the thought of like, that mindset that, oh yeah, women can do things that men can, but just not as well, was like very prevalent in that day. And like, not that Amelia went around necessarily being like, no, you're wrong about that. I'm like trying to like do all of her life to be like, you're wrong about that. But like, she followed her passions and along the way was like showing women like, 
you don't have to like do what everybody says that you have to do if you don't want to basically I think was her general attitude which I think is pretty cool um but along with that she was very tired of like being the like token female like pilot who oh the first woman who did this the first lady who did this like um a few years before she went across and flew across the Atlantic solo, she accompanied two other men whose names were Wilmer Stetz and Lincoln Ellsworthy on their trip across the Atlantic, and she was their navigator um, on the seaplane called Friendship, which I think is a pretty cool name. But um, she basically was asked to be the navigator for their flight because she was a woman, and the men really got the credit for that trip across the Atlantic and she was just the, I don't know, press, like, showstopper of like, oh, wow, a woman can do this. Um, so, and that journey took 21 and a half hours. And I'll get into this later, but um, the person who recruited her into doing that was George P. Putnam who she later married, so pretty cool. A lot of the things that she set out to do, she wanted to do because she wanted to prove to herself that she could do it or she just really liked flying and wanted to do it. So some of the achievements that she had, she was the 16th woman in the United States to receive her pilot's license. And then I was like, hmm, interesting. This is like something that people always list about Amelia Earhart. But I wanted to look into, like, who were the other women in the world who were getting their flying licenses before her and how much before her. So I bit, went on a bit of a tangent uh, on women in aviation. And I might butcher some of these names because a lot of these women were from France. And I... And not very good at pronouncing French names, so I apologize in advance. But the very first woman to get her official pilot's license was Raymond de La Roche. And she earned that in 1910. So I did a little bit of research on her. She was a plumber, or a daughter of a plumber, I should say. I'm so sorry. And she was also an actress. And she had the nickname Baroness La Roche. And she was the first woman to ever fly solo. So that's pretty cool. Like, it makes sense that the first woman to get her pilot's license would be the first woman to fly solo. But it's also, I think, there was a very prevalent attitude at the time of, like, oh, we can't let women fly because they'll just mess it up because they won't be good at this or something. I don't know. So the very same year that she got her pilot's license, however, she was in a plane crash um, that was very severe and people thought she wouldn't ever be able to fly again. But two years later, she was able to fly. In 1912, which was that same year that she was able to fly again, she was in a car crash with her partner, Charles Vosen, or Voisin, I'm not sure. I think he was a pilot as well. But I don't quite remember. Um, however, he unfortunately was killed in this crash and she herself also sustained injuries. Um, during World War I, she was a military driver because at that time 
they thought that flying was too dangerous for women to do, especially in wartime. Um, which it was very dangerous. There's no getting around that fact, especially during World War One when aircraft and flying was very new. It was a very dangerous game. Well, war is very dangerous, so I don't know. But she was a military driver, and she was still like active in the war effort, so good, I guess. And then she died in 1919 um, in an experimental aircraft situation. Both she and the other co-pilot with her died in that crash, um, which I think, like, obviously it's very tragic that she died this way um, so suddenly and so young, but it's also a testament to just her fearlessness and her tenacity and just her love of flying and following that passion even in its very earliest days um, when it was still very, very dangerous. Um, anyways, that's all I have on Raymond. And the second woman who got her pilot's license was Martha Neal, and she was French also. And Marie Marvignet was the third, and she was also French. Helen Dutrieu from Belgium was the fourth, and she was also the first Belgian woman to receive her pilot's license. Jeanne Hervu was French as well, and she was the fifth. And it's all of those women who earned their pilot's license that all happened in 1910. So you can kind of see how um, there was just this shift in, like, starting in 1910 and just how from then until, like, through Amelia Earhart's life, how um, airplanes became a much more common and known thing and how much... Um, innovation was happening with them. Uh, the sixth woman to ever her receive her pilot's license was Marie-Louise Drycourt. She was French. Um, the seventh woman who received her license pilot's license was Harriet Quimby, and she was the first U.S. woman to ever receive her pilot's license. And she also, another achievement that she had was she was the first woman to fly across the English Channel, and that happened in 1912. Lydia, oh, I'm not going to be able to say this right, Zervea was from Russia, and in 1911 she was the eighth woman to receive her pilot's license, and the first woman to do a loop-de-loop -loop in an airplane. So she also was... Um, performing at air shows and like almost circus-like places of just like a performer and she did acrobats and that kinds of thing um and she was really on track to do really awesome great things but unfortunately she died very early in her life at the age of 26 from typhoid fever um amelia bees from germany was the ninth woman to receive her pilot's license in the first german woman and Beatrix de Rigique was the 10th woman to receive her pilot's license and the first such woman to do so. So those are kind of just the like first hidden women that I researched who had received pilot's licenses. And I think it's important to note that um, flying then was so new and revolutionary that 
you didn't need your pilot's license to be able to fly a plane. You would just need a plane and need to know how to use it. Um, so the pilot's license was like something that was coming more into use. These 10 women weren't necessarily the first 10 to fly, but it, I mean, it's likely that they were, but it's not for sure. Um, so anyways, back to Amelia. She didn't earn her pilot's license until 1922. So Amelia, back to Amelia, she was the 16th woman in the United States. So 15 women between her and Harriet Quimby, or she was the 15th woman after Harriet Quimby, I should say, to earn her pilot's license in America, in the United States of America. And she didn't earn hers until 1922. But um, she was, I think, it's weird because she is like the woman pilot from like that time period that everybody knows. And I think part of that is um, due to her accomplishments, her solo trips around the Pacific and around the Atlantic and just I think a lot of it also centers around her disappearance when she went on her trip um, around the equator. And so I think it's that twofold thing of the nature of her career in flying, how public that was, and just um, the public way that she disappeared. And um, yeah. So I think going back to her childhood will help us to understand her a bit better. Uh, she was born in Atchison, Kansas in 1897, and this is not where her parents lived, but this is where her grandparents lived, and she was born Amelia Mary Earhart, and those two names were both of the names of her grandmothers, which is um, very quaint. I don't know, I thought that was nice. And she was also close to her grandparents. Um, she had a bit of a how shall I say, mobile childhood. Um, her father was in the railroad business, so uh, they moved around a lot. And um, another, I don't know, added bit of turmoil in her childhood was just the way that her father was um, an alcoholic at points. Um, he would try and clean up his act at certain points for his family and then he would always return to the bottle um which is she was always very vocal about being against drinking alcohol when she was an adult and i think that very much stems back to what she saw in her father and um, the way that it affected her family um and i from what I've read, I believe that he wasn't always an alcoholic. Like, he was driven to this lifestyle, I guess, by um, just the nature of his job and how much uncertainty. Like, he would move his family across the country and then realize that the job he was about to take over wasn't available for him anymore. And it was a kind of a high-stress job. Um, so, unfortunately, he adapted a very unhealthy coping mechanism, which was destructive to um, 
Kate's family, her parents, um, Amelia's parents, did not split up for many years. Um, and I think that had to do with inheritance money. But it was definitely something that affected her life a lot. And when she was um, graduated from high school, I know she would um, try and get them to reconcile with each other. Um, as a child, Amelia was very independent and free-spirited. Um, she uh, really liked books and she looked up to her father a lot because she thought that she, he had read every book ever in the world and he would always come to her with like really long words that she would like go off and have to look up in the dictionary and learn what they meant. Um, which I think that just adds like another layer of tragedy to her life of the way that she just really looked up to her father and then um as her childhood went on just realized how um not involved he became um when she was six years old she built a trap for um her neighbors had hens and sometimes the hens would escape and wander into their yard and stuff so she built a trap and captured a hen and she was so proud of herself and she ran up to her mother and she's like mom mom look i caught a hen what are we gonna do with it and her mom was like well just let it go and give it back to the neighbors and amelia was so gutted she thought she had done this really amazing wonderful thing and then her mom was like no you have to undo that all but i think that kind of like speaks to just the um kind of like more technical mindset that she may have had um she was always doing things that i don't know maybe tradition said was only for boys like i remember reading in her book um that she like whenever she came home from school she would always like jump a fence because it was like a shortcut and way faster and um when her grandmother like learned about that she was jumping this fence instead of going around it she was she told amelia she said you don't realize that when i was a small girl i did nothing more strenuous than roll hoop in the public square and amelia was so ashamed of herself because she was being unladylike that she like walked around the fence for a couple of days and then she was like no this is dumb i'm gonna go back to jumping the fence and she has this whole like section in her um, autobiography where she talks about how clothing like really impacted her childhood like how um, she has this quote that says tradition hampers as much as clothing and she just talks about how you, if you're wearing a dress you can't do as much like as a activity wise for, as a kid um, and she and her little sister Muriel um, were actually the first girls in her entire town that would wear play suits on the weekends instead of wearing their little frilly dresses and I think she wasn't like self-conscious or like she wasn't very ashamed of having to wear play suits because it was so practical for her and she was like this makes a lot more sense for me if I'm going to be like playing and doing all of that stuff um but I think it's just kind of that different way of thinking that was like much more I guess modern um just not of her time as much um she didn't 
I guess, hold tradition that highly. So when she was in, when she um, got to high school, she moved to Chicago because um, that's where her family was at the time. And at that point, her parents split up, but I don't think they divorced. I think they just um, lived separately from each other in different cities. Um, So Amelia graduated high school and she entered into college in October of 1916, um, where she attended Ogot School, which was near Philadelphia, um, while her little sister Muriel went to St. Margaret's College in Toronto, Canada. Um, And this was not her original plan. Uh, Amelia had originally wanted to go to Brian Marr and then Vassar, but she filed too late. Um, But she was, like, very involved um, just with the students there at her time in college. Uh, She played hockey, studied French and German. Um, Although, apparently, I don't know the story behind this, but she, like, apparently was spoke out against the secret sororities um, at that college. Which is, I don't know, I guess, I don't know why you would want your sorority to be secret. Maybe that just was a different thing of the time. Anyways, um, she was there from October until December, and during December she went and visited her sister in Toronto. And during that time, um, she kind of had a career shift. Um, She wrote it about it in her book the fun of it by saying, um, one day I saw four one-legged men at once walking as best they could down the street together. Mother, I'd like to stay here and help in the hospitals, I said once I had returned home. I can't bear the thought of going back to school and being so useless. So she just had this one experience where she just saw the pain and, um, struggle of others and, knew that she couldn't stand by idly and do nothing. She was a very motivated, active person. Um, So that's what she did. She dropped out of college. She became a nurse in Toronto until the end of the war in 1918. Um, And it was during that winter of 1918 that she became very interested in airplanes. And like when she wasn't working at the hospital, she would walk down by the airfield and just watch the planes. And she thought they were really um, very fascinating, I guess. Um, She moved to Northampton, Massachusetts in 1919. And um, during the spring after, well, she had contracted the bug that was going around the hospital. So she had, I think it's, it's the bacteria or the bug like settled in the cavity of her mouth like behind her teeth or something and so she had to have several surgeries and everything but once she was better from that um, she took an all-girls automotive class um, and was signed up to start taking pre-med classes in the fall Um, I think just her time working as a nurse just really piqued her interest in medicine And she enrolled in Columbia University in New York. Um, But she didn't stay on this course for very long. Um, She said in her book that when you're young, that you make very 
life-changing decisions on very superficial reasons. And I think she couldn't see herself in the future giving patients like placebo pills and being like, this will help you get better if you just take this. Like, that wasn't something she wanted to do with her life. And I completely relate to her about this aspect of like, oh, like, I am now studying this with in college, but I used to be studying this, but the reasons I changed, like, were kind of superficial in some ways, but I, I don't know, I think also valid. Um, so anyways, she moved to California with her, to live with her father, and that was where she went to that air show in Los Angeles and where she flew for the first time. So as I said, um, she went up in the air with Frank Hawks. Um, although afterwards, like as amazing as her experience flying was, she thought that he himself, the pilot, was a bit arrogant, and that she, um, when she when it came for her to seek out a tr- instructor, a flying instructor, she found a woman to teach her, and not a man. And I think. That makes a lot of sense if all of the men in that field were going to assume that women wouldn't be as good. That you would want to find somebody to teach you who would be able to respect you and know that you could excel in what you did. I think at that air show, she was with there with both of her parents and she was like, Oh, you know, someday I might like to pursue cl- flying as a career and her parents were like oh yeah sure that sounds cool so it was very casual the way she kind of just eased into it and her parents were like oh sure and then she like actually started trying to find money for lessons and her dad was like i did not know you were serious about this i can't pay for this i don't have enough money and he just assumed I guess that if he wasn't paying for the lessons that she would not be able to take the lessons, um, which wasn't the case. Um, Amelia got her first job to pay for her lessons in a telephone company, and she worked uh, several other jobs throughout the years to um, pay for this because it was very expensive to both have flying lessons and eventually for her to get her own plane. It was not a cheap endeavor at all. And so it really became like the driving force of what she was doing with her life was she wanted to take these lessons and to get her own play. And so she would work all of these like two or three jobs at a time trying to pay for this. And um, I think that's very bold. That's a very bold move to make to just like fly one time and be like, this is what I'm doing with the rest of my life. This is what I'm going to spend all of my money on. This is what I'm going to spend my waking hours thinking about and everything. Um, but it worked out for her. Um, so that's really great. Um, and her mother, I think, was concerned about the kinds of jobs that Amelia was taking on, thinking that they were almost only suitable for men. And so I think mostly because of that, um, when it came time for Amelia to buy her first plane, her mother helped um, her financially in that purchase because she didn't want Amelia to be working all of these um, jobs that she thought were too dangerous for a woman to do. Um, And Amelia's first plane was a yellow Kinner biplane, and she named it the Canary, which I, I think that's really cute. 
and it was around this time that she was engaged to Sam Chapman. Um, Amelia was terribly independent and um, free-spirited, and she often spoke of marriage as a cage, so it's not that surprising to learn that she broke this engagement off with um, the chemical engineer, Sam Chapman, because she knew that he would ground her too much and she didn't want her marriage to be a cage that she felt trapped in. So a little bit after this, um, she was running into financial issues just with trying to pay for lessons and keep up the expenses of flying planes and everything. So she had moved to Boston and she was working as a social worker there. And that is where the publicist George Putnam found her. And he was trying to recruit her, as I said before, to be the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Um, And her first impression of him was not favorable. She said that he was rude, brusque, um, constantly making telephone calls in the middle of their meeting. But by the end of the meeting, she said that she had gained a lot of respect for him. And her relationship with George Putnam, she tried to keep it private. And because of that, some people like to say, oh, they didn't really love each other. Or some people try to make it like this whole other thing. I don't know. So I am going to actually have a mini series where I discuss all of the facts that we know about it and try to interpret how it was because it, I think it does, it is important, um, in her life decisions and like even in like her choices of to fly um, across around the world around the equator um, just very dangerous things that her husband was okay with her doing which was very unusual for the time so I will be releasing a mini podcast about that very soon and there might even be a surprise guest so stay tuned But suffice to say that they did marry in 1931, and one year later was her famous solo trip across the Atlantic. Um, Like I said before, her trip that Putnam originally was recruiting her to was basically a publicity stunt, where she was just the token woman. But because she was hard up on money at the time, she she took that. Another note about Amelia's career uh, was her work at Purdue University. So um, this was a part-time career where she was a counselor for women at Purdue and an advisor in aeronautics. And that was from the years 1935 until 1937 when she disappeared. So not for very long, but from what I understand, if she hadn't disappeared, there would have been a lot more things that she would have done at Purdue University and with Purdue University. Um, I think it's also important to note that the Lockheed Electra plane that she flew across the equator around the world with, that was given to her by the Purdue Research Foundation. Um, And the Purdue Research Foundation also um, has the largest compilation of Earhart's related papers, memorabilia, and artifacts, which is available online, which this collection also includes documents related to Earhart's 
1932 solo Atlantic flight and her second and fatal attempt at world flight in 1937. So Purdue has um, a lot of stuff about Amelia Earhart and it's actually where I am right now. I live in Lafayette, Indiana and I'm attending Purdue University, which is one of the reasons that I personally find Amelia so inspiring and so fascinating. So yeah, that basically sums up her life and some of her accomplishments. Like I said, I'm going to be getting into her relationship with George Putnam on a mini episode. And for the next five episodes, I'm going to be discussing different um, theories on what happened to her, where she disappeared to, why her radio transmissions were so clear and then absolutely disappeared and yeah I am so excited to be doing this you guys and stay tuned next week until the new episode is released love you bye